Good morning, everyone. To give this talk a title, it's called The Life-Centred Individual. And uh, it's following a little bit from last Tuesday's talk about being alone and together, about differences of individualism in Japanese culture where Zen developed and in our culture, which is very individualistic. But you know, as we make frequent mention of in, in Zen practice, um, you know, the whole point of it is to recognise um, that we're sort of caught, we're, we're sort of living in a, a self-centred dream, a little bubble of, of a, a apparent separateness and everything, all the shenanigans that, that go with that experience. But paradoxically, the more you practice Zen and the more insight you develop, um, paradoxically, you become more of an individual. And that's what I want to focus on. When you become life-centred rather than self-centred, you do in fact become more of an individual. And um, as a way of, of uh, getting into this talk, there's a book I just started um, reading, which is called um, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, who is a um, now a, a best-selling um, author. He's a, a, a Harvard, Harvard-based um, clinical psychologist, and what he does is he integrates ancient wisdom with um, with cutting-edge modern science. And so I'm, I'm sort of rather interested in it. I've only read the first chapter so far, and um, the first chapter is titled um, "Stand Up Straight with Your Shoulders Back." Right. He's a simple, simple kind of rule. And then what he does is he goes into this elaborate scientific description of, of lobsters. They, they wonder what the connection is with lobsters. But apparently lobsters have been around for about 400 million years. Dinosaurs are only, one, you know, about 160 million years ago, but lobsters are apparently very good at evolving and surviving. And so he uses them as an example. And what he does with quite a lot of detail, and some of that's actually very funny too, is he looks at the whole dominant-submissive patterns within lobsters because they have a very clear dominant-submissive hierarchy that they work in, um, which is all to do with evolution and survival. So that the top lobsters get the best little shelters and homes to live in, so they're the safest and they get all the best food and they get all the girls. Right? And they, and then if you're further down in, in the order, you get less of that. And if you're up the top of the hierarchy, you have very high serotonin levels, which give you that sort of cocky feeling of being confident, you know, and everything. And if you're down in the pecking order, you have very, very low levels of serotonin. And um, he's implying that there are the dominant submissive patterns in human culture as well, and how important it is we want to get our fair serotonin that we, we, you know, upright and shoulders back so that we don't get picked on. Now that, that's very interesting um, and I'm sure that's there in, we can see that in, in human nature. But if you reflect on it, um, we're not lobsters, we have a little bit more grey matter and there's, there's other things happening there as well, which may be in the other 11 rules I haven't come to yet. But um, Yes, you can see that there are a dominant submissive patterns in culture and how that affects people's sense of well-being, where they are in the pecking order and how people try to fit in so that they're not pecked 
and how that can impact on our individuality. But to, to first of all give two examples in our own tradition but also in Christianity of human behaviour that goes against that striving for dominance and trying to avoid submissiveness. In the case of the Buddha, here's someone who's at the top of the hierarchy. He's bound to be the ruler of the land under his, under his father. And um, he gives it all away. And he gives the wealth away, gives the position away, gives the girls away, gives everything away, and he becomes a monk. Like, he doesn't own anything, he's got no status. And when you think when he first does that, he doesn't know he's going to become a famous Buddha. And he just, he gives away the whole hierarchy issue and drops out to try and understand what the nature of life is in existence. So that's an example of someone who goes against that instinctive pattern. In Christianity you, you have many, many examples as well, but the one that really, really strikes me is the figure of um, St Francis. So Francis too was top of the hierarchy in Assisi. You know, his father was very wealthy and he was actually, as a kid, he was a real rebel who led all the, you know, all the outrageous parties and everything, so he was a kind of a leader. And he drops out as well. Something in says, this is, this is not satisfying. And there's a great story of him where they had lepers, you know, the lepers weren't allowed to live in the towns because they'd infect one of those. So there'd be these sort of groups of lepers who lived in the, in the countryside trying to survive. And he accidentally comes across them on one day and all self-preservation would go, get away from you. Right? He goes towards them. Not only does he go towards them, he cleans their wounds. Right, that, that goes against all the principles of self-preservation. So they're very, they're two very famous examples, but there's, there's examples of that behaviour everywhere in human behaviour too. And if you reflect on um, your childhood, you know, and going to school, um, in school where in adolescent behaviour, boys and girls, where those, you know, competing for hierarchies is very, 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 uh, graphic, you know, and clear. And you think back, there was kids you went to school with who were bullies, and there were schools you, the kids you went to school with who were victims and the ones who already always got picked on. But when you reflect on it, there were kids you went to school with and they were neither bullies, neither were they picked on, you know, and they just seemed to get on with everyone, but no one ever gave them a hard time, and they never particularly gave anyone else a hard time. So there's that, that component to human behaviour as well. Even if I look at my dog in the park, you know, as, a, as an animal, he, um, he doesn't bully other dogs and he won't be bullied either. Right? So there's something else going on there as well, even though it, it's clearly um, a characteristic of human behaviour that's consistent with all animals, that we do create these dominant and submissive hierarchies. But what happens through Zen practice, if we look at the, some of the basic things that occur through what we're doing today and end up what we do in our life, is that um, we, um, we don't say we want to create, we create a state of being, but we go back to a kind of original state of being, which is non-conceptual. 
we try to actually see life not through that belief or this belief or change this one for that one or a better one. We're actually just dropping all conceptual systems and we're just trying to see life as accurately as we possibly can in this here and now experience. And when we're not attached to belief systems, then we're not so preoccupied with conforming. Because another instinct that animals have, and human beings as well as a herd instinct, right? so as well as the hierarchy, we've got to be sort of feel like there's a sense of being in or out. And if you're in, you're safer, and if you're out, you're not safe. So if you agree with other people who have a certain belief system, somewhere on the political spectrum or the religious spectrum or whatever, or even if you're an atheist, you know, that's, that's a kind of a view of the world as well. You, if you are attached to belief systems and you need to feel secure about belonging to the herd, then you lose your individuality. And uh, that's the price you have to pay to feel safe. But when you're actually not trying to attach to a belief system to feel in, you know, or to feel safe, and you can just be with the feel comfortable with the transience and the, imper- and the impermanence and emptiness of life, then that's, that's a different experience. And, and when you fall into that, then paradoxically, you become more of an individual because you're not blown around not only by your own belief systems, but by the prevailing belief systems that might be there in a culture. So something evolves on, on that dimension as well. Um, it's kind of, I find it funny in a way, like even looking at um, politics, is that how, how tribal um, people can become in their politics. They either believe everything on the left or everything on the right. Um, you very rarely come across someone who might have a conservative view on that level and a radical one on that level, and they're all over the place. They're the people who probably think for themselves. But even, even politics, you know, amongst fairly well-educated people um, can be so sort of tribal in, in, in the way uh, that people relate to one another. It's like you're in or you're out. You're them or you're us. Mm-hmm. And that's the way most people look at it. Um, in terms of becoming more of an individual, not only through Zen practice, not only we're not driven by concepts, um, but we also drop into this dimension where we re- it's the empty, full dimension. I just want to call it emptiness because that, that can distort the way we understand it. But it's the empty, full dimension. We realise that we're nothing and we're everything at the same time. So there's some kind of uh, identification with other people, some identification with other beings that we won't have if we're just in a dominant submissive pattern or a you know, them and us kind of idea. And um, as animals have evolved, mammals have actually developed warm-blooded mammals have developed a kind of a connection to protecting their young, you know, looking after their young. So that becomes the building block of like compassion, love, you know, selflessness. And um, 
I mean, human beings, you know, mothers or fathers may be, you know, naturally particularly concerned, you know, for the welfare of their children will do anything to protect them or to help them to survive. But the word metta in Buddhism, uh, which is loving kindness, is that very love that a mother or a father would have to their own child extended to all beings. Right? So it's the same, it's the same love, but it's, it goes beyond just me and my to this capacity to actually develop a, 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 a much more all-embracing compassion, do you know, or a much more all-embracing uh, love and care for all things. So, who knows how or why, but human beings, or at least some human beings, have this capacity to do this. It's the Buddhist perspective that we all have it if we break through out of this bubble that we're in and we can actually get back to, to, to cultivating or being in touch with that sense of the, the interconnectedness of everything. And then those feelings naturally emerge. Now, in, to be realistic too, you know, to, live, to live a life, there's not only that horizontal dimension that I'm talking about where everything is one and, every, and a sense of fairness comes out, out of that and a sense of compassion. There's that horizontal level. But um, we also exist in organisations and so on and there's a vertical aspect to it as well. And there, are, there is the person who's the boss who's going to have more power than someone else further down. And um, if, we, if we're truly an individual, we can exist in that, that construct, you know, which is there to do our job, and we're not particularly threatened by it, like reactive to it or submissive to it. You know, like the kid at school is neither bullied or, or a victim, you know, and we exist in that, that, that hierarchy unless it becomes abusive and we do something about it. Um, so someone who is really secure in their own embodiment and their, their own being um, can harmonise in different situations. They don't have to um, signal how different they are. Even in a in a Zen group, you know, obviously in a in a, a Zen style compared to other styles of meditation groups, we ha everyone does the same thing together. We all wear black and sit like this, you know, and etc. We're all, we're all on the outside. We're all doing the same thing together. Um, and some people people have difficulty fitting into this kind of pattern, others don't. Um, and that's fine. But um, when people find it difficult to actually harmonise with something which is non-harming, whether it's the, the ritual of a Zen group or dancing, whatever it might be, you know, dancing is a form of like just doing the same steps together and harmonising together. Um, if you go to classical dancing classes and you want to do rock and roll, you're in the wrong place. You know? um, and the people who are grounded in who they are can, can harmonise quite easily because it's not a threat to their individuality. Sometimes when people can't harmonise with other people, whatever context it is, it's because it's a, a threat to the, to the little self. <clears throat> um, there are 
there are simple ways, or may, I'm being a bit judgmental here, but there are cheap ways in which you can become an individual. That would be to dye your hair green, you know, or to wear, you know, big tattoos or whatever, etc. And that way you, you stand out. Um, but in, in, in Zen practice or any spiritual practice, if you're so comfortable in who you are, you don't have to display that you're an individual. And often people who are, who are generally very, actually very, very strong individuals, they don't need to do anything to display how different they are to other people. Now, um, so we have, in, in neuroscience, they talk about reptilian brains and mammalian brains and human brains. And it looks like there is some process of evolution occurring there. And um, we're not lobsters, but we have a lobster brain in there as well, a reptilian brain in there. Um, and sometimes that can become dominant you know, in the way that we behave in the world, or the mammalian one was. And I'm not, I'm not particularly a, a rosy-eyed, um, look, look at the world through rose-coloured glasses and think the human race is evolving towards some wonderful species where everything will be a utopia. I don't know. I don't, I don't have any view, really, as to whether that will occur or not. But I suppose if you take up Zen practice, if you take up Dharma practice, um, I guess what you're doing is you're committed to the process of that happening. You may not know what the outcome will be, but at that individual level, and as much as you can create a, a culture, you're where where we are signed up to cultivating um, compassion, you know, and seeing ourselves in others, and um, and aspiring to to, to create a, a culture that has that outlook. Even in spiritual matters there are, there are those who are in and those who are out or higher or lesser and I'm reminded um, in um, Dante's Divine Comedy is that when he describes heaven, so it's kind of hierarchy, you could be in hell then purgatory then you get to heaven so that's a spiritual, that's a spiritual hierarchy. Um, but when you get to heaven then um, depending on how saintly you are, if you're really saintly, then you're closer to God, like God is the sun and, and you're really close. And if you're, not, if you're saintly but not so saintly, you're a little bit on the outside. You know? um, but nevertheless, in, in heaven, um, everyone's comfortable with their position, whether they're closer to God or not closer to God, because it doesn't really matter when you're in heaven. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, there's also a, a Zen koan, which touches on this same issue, and it's it's in the gateless barrier, and it's called um, a girl comes out of samadhi. And the story of it is is that the Buddha, this mythical story is that the Buddha has a has a, a, a meeting like gives a Dharma talk, and all the great bodhisattvas of all time are all there, um, and and yet there's this girl, and think. Back in that time too, a, a girl's further down on the hierarchy, you know, in India. She's not even an adult. You know. This young girl is sitting closer to the Buddha than everyone else. Why is that? You know? And, and Monjustri, the, um, 
the uh, Bodhisattva of Wisdom questions the Buddha, you know, how come, how come the girl can, can sit closer to you and we're all on the outside? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll leave that with you as a koan. <laughs> but that's an interesting koan. And when you really see, when you really get out of this, this sort of instinctive, conceptual way of looking at the world as, as in terms of hierarchy, you know, better, higher and lower, better than and worse, in, out, when all of that, when we see through those those ways of being, then then we drop into another way of being, and that's what this koan um, challenges to look at. So, in summary, um, you you break out of these sort of habitual. Um, ways of being and they're still in our nature we can't run away from our instincts, they're still there but something does transform human experience you see it in the playground, you see it in spirituality, you see it in human life and uh, being egocentric um, and being self-centred is very very different from being a true individual